0: Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Maddie King, who is a friend of mine. She's a 19-year-old commerce student who's just come out of the end of her chemotherapy. She was diagnosed with cancer. It's a very young thing. We speak about that and about the fact that the world that she was looking forward to coming back into at the end of her chemotherapy which you began 5 months ago the world has changed a lot so we do talk about the virus if you do not want to hear about that if that's not a subject that you if it's a subject that you're kind of overwhelmed with hearing about this might not be the episode for you but i think it's very interesting we talk about business and the arts and the ways in which those interact we're coming from very different world views on that i wrestle with sort of uh, the the arts and and business and my feelings about treating the arts as a business, and she's coming from a very different perspective, I think is really interesting. Towards the end of the episode, I'm not sure if I articulate myself particularly well, but that's part of what this podcast is about. It's about wrestling with ideas and talking about things that we find difficult and showing ways in which we can talk about things that are difficult for us or difficult in general. So I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I really enjoyed having this conversation. We had it over Zoom because we're both in quarantine uh, for different reasons. I've just come back from the from UK to Australia and she is in uh, quarantine because she has no immune system at the moment. She is a high-risk category. If you are a subscriber to... Amazon Prime, my show, Savage, comes out on the 17th of April, uh, so I'll be having a watching party with that. Every night I'm doing an Instagram Live, every night, 9.30pm Sydney time, which is 11.30am UK time, and my show, The Last Post, is coming out. My, my podcast is coming out every day, The Last Post, a, a satirical news comedy set in an alternate dimension, daily satirical news comedy set in an alternate dimension. So there's plenty of stuff of mine out there, and oh my goodness, I cannot thank the people on, who have been subscribing to the Patreon enough. I was not expecting this with the world becoming very uncertain. To have such a surge of support there has been mind-blowing for me. Really, truly, I, I often say um, as a matter of principle that the arts is not a luxury it's not the last thing on first thing off in a hierarchy of what people uh, need i talk about my i i have this story it's a, tr- a true story and i use it um oh, I, I refer to it regularly of my grandmother in the war hiding in a cellar with her friends and they would put on little plays for each other i think you know the arts is an incredible um thing and and comedy particularly the way that I try to do comedy is about about connecting humanity and I say this as a matter of principle but I say it as a matter of principle that I kind of in my head somewhere think of as against against the general mood of the world Uh, and (laughs) I have been thoroughly refuted by the support um, that has come up uh, particularly on my Patreon platform it is huge and I appreciate it very, very, very much. Thanks as always goes to Ben Wren, who is helping me with these uh, editing these podcasts, and particularly when it's done remotely like this, the sound quality issues to deal with, and he is so kind to do that. Email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com, uh, tweet me at alliterative, A L I T E R A T I V E. I will talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening. You're having tea with Alice. Hello. Hello. Hello, perfect. Uh, So, who are you and what are you drinking? Okay, I am Maddie King.
1: I'm 19. I'm a business student and I'm drinking a daffodil
0: based herbal tea. Excellent. That's a good place to start. Uh, Why do you drink a daffodil based herbal tea? What does it do for you? What do you like about it?
1: I like the taste. I'm not sure if I'm correct, but I believe it has either no caffeine or little caffeine because it's later in the day. I tend to avoid caffeine after 12 p.m. So that is why I've
0: chosen this tea. And what have you been wrestling with of late?
1: Um, I think it's difficult to answer that question with anything, but what's going on in the world right now with the virus that (laughs) shall not be named. Um, But... uh, In my personal life, I guess, I just finished chemo. So I've been wrestling with how different the end of chemo is looking than how I thought it was going to look because of the virus that shall not be named. Um, You know, I had this whole idea the past five months during treatment of how i was going to celebrate coming out of it and all the things i was going to do and i can't do a lot of those things so just trying to get used to a new normal when the world isn't normal
0: yeah that's a that's a hard thing often what you if you can see the end of a road somewhere like if you can see the end of a hard road you reassure yourself that with all the exciting things that you want do once that's over, once it's finished and you have your freedom, but to have the world kind of change under your feet right at the end of that road is yep. feels a bit unfair. Definitely does.
1: Um, and I think also because I'm in the immunocompromised population who would be in the critical care if I did get the coronavirus, it's kind of that added anxiety of having to be extra extra careful and um, you have to isolate during chemo treatment anyway to avoid crowded areas and not as extreme as what everyone's doing now but you do have to do that to a certain extent and it was like coming out of a certain type of isolation and then going straight back into one.
0: Yeah that's a That's a hard thing. You would then sort of, I guess, be a little bit ahead of people in the coping mechanism of kind of going stir crazy in your little box of a house.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I think um, it's definitely the little things because I didn't leave my house that much during treatment, but when I did, it was to just do little things like go and get a coffee or do a yoga class. And, like, I didn't expect that not having even just those two little things, like how much it impacts you mentally with just getting through every day. Like it's difficult to find things to look forward to. And um, my last chemo, I was supposed to go there with a bunch of friends and I didn't get to do that. And so the whole thing felt quite anticlimactic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it sounds sort of, you know, in the face of, you know, important medical realities, you shouldn't be worrying Mm -hmm. about little things like that, but it is little things like that that, make life worth living, I'm in uh, full quarantine at the moment and f- not, not allowed to go for walks and I'm on my own here. Yeah. And it's the combination, I think, for me of obviously this is a, sh- a shorter span, but uh, not having physical contact with other people, no hugs, mm-hmm. and no outside. Like I could handle being yeah. inside if I had humans around me. And if I didn't yeah. have people, then I could go for walks. I could probably handle being alone. Yeah. But neither of those things is... Yeah. Uh, and again, like I don't want to exaggerate the impact that it's having on me. It's very manageable, but it is a stress.
1: Yeah. No, I totally understand, and I think it's also, um, like letting yourself feel upset about that without, I guess, categorizing how bad your suffering is compared to someone else. Because I think in my position a lot of people would look at like a cancer patient for example and be like oh I can't complain because I'm not in that situation and then I am in that situation but I also have a lot of friends who have it way worse than me who are in the middle of treatment or who have just been diagnosed and it's quite difficult to like let yourself feel stressed and feel anxious about what's happening and at the same time try and have empathy for other people I think I would say that's another thing I'm kind of struggling with is like feeling grateful for things and also letting myself feel upset about things because I know so many people that have it a lot worse than I do.
0: Yeah, I sort of, I've never been a big believer in competitive suffering in yeah. that way. I don't think it's very useful in part because if you have a friend who is in dire straits and you don't complain to them about your smaller problems, your in some way taking away from the oppo- them the opportunity to empathise and thim- sympathise with you. Like part of being human is that we all have our own different struggles and part of certainly what I think of as being important to humanity is being able to share and empathise with other people yeah, um, and, and and understand things from their point of view or, or learn something new about your own situation by reference to mm-hmm. theirs, which might be completely unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. You know?
1: Mm. yeah um yeah no that's a good point competitive suffering I've never heard it like that's a good you know what I mean right yeah no totally I've never put it into words before but I've like I think throughout the whole experience I've kind of grappled with that like am I I guess it's a weird question to ask but am I suffering enough almost because I (laughs) You know, (laughs) well, treatment treatment wasn't nice, but I definitely had it easier than I've seen a lot of people go through the same treatment. And so you do kind of question, like, have I gotten off too lightly?
0: (laughs) 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 I don't know if that sounds really weird. No, I understand it. But it is that thing of your sprained ankle doesn't hurt any less for the knowledge that someone else has a broken leg or a missing leg. Yeah. Still a, a valid pain. It's sort of when it takes the next step to... In the context of the suffering of the people around you, then how many resources can you demand? I think that's that's the only point at which it becomes sort of hierarchical. Yeah,
1: and I think it's also been interesting to observe how the whole situation has such a trickle-down effect in the hospital systems. Like, um, for example, they shut down the entire fertility unit because IVF procedures and things aren't seen as essential medical procedures. And so patients that are diagnosed now, if you wanted the opportunity to preserve your eggs, which I luckily got because I was diagnosed before all of this happened, um, you wouldn't get that now. And I have a small window of opportunity coming up in a few months where I wanted to do a second IVF cycle so that if I wanted to freeze more eggs to increase My chances of pregnancy later in life, um, I would have the opportunity to do that before my ovaries would potentially shut down forever. And we don't know if that will definitely happen, but there's a window of a couple of months where you can do it. And I guess I'm kind of worried about if this goes on for a long time, if I will be able to do that. And that's just something that I didn't think
0: would be affected. But it is. That's a really interesting thing as well, though, because you're 19, you're very young. That is not normally the age at which uh, young women need to think about their fertility. Exactly. Yeah. Most, most women don't even start considering it as anything other than a potential negative impact on their life being fertile until yeah, they're exactly. these days in their late 20s, um, maybe yeah. 30s. Was that a big shift for you? Um,
1: I... It was interesting for me. So, I've always been a person that has known that I wanted kids, and it's been something that I had discussed with my mum for a really long time that I was always someone that wanted to have kids. And so, for me, when I was diagnosed, and because I had a lot of time to research what happens with chemo and things that you need to think about. Before I was actually diagnosed because my diagnosis took a long time. Um, I knew that that was something that I had to think about, but I know that for a lot of people my age, it isn't something that you think about. So it was a really obvious choice for me to do that and upsetting for me to find out that because my chemo was so intense that it would potentially put me into menopause at the 20 um so it like it wasn't so much of a shock because I had researched it but um it was definitely upsetting um definitely going through the process was really confronting I think um to actually like you have to do these self-injections every day for I think about a week and then they do regular um, blood tests to check your hormone levels to time when they actually take it out. And I think that like actually going through that process and like checking yourself and being like, what the heck everyone around me in this waiting room is in their twenties and thirties. And I'm this 19 year old sitting there. And then everyone is always asking you like, Oh, are you trying to get pregnant? And you have to be like, no, I've got cancer. (laughs) Like. That was a bit of an awkward conversation to have. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was an obvious choice for me. And I know that it's not an obvious choice for everyone because I know, I know that a lot of young girls who um, get diagnosed don't do it either. They just don't think that it's something that they want to think about. They can't manage their diagnosis and treatment and everything else that goes on at the same time as doing the whole fertility thing. And also some people, if their cancer is super aggressive, they don't get the opportunity to do that because they have to start chemotherapy straight away. So I feel quite lucky in that regard, actually, that I got that option and was educated enough to
0: navigate. Well, the and also determined enough to sort of face the unpleasant reality. You know, there's a, uh, there's that, is it Huntington's disease? something, uh, where you have like a 50% chance of having it, of inheriting it from a parent. Uh, there's and a look, few conditions like that. Yeah, most people don't test for it because they can't mm-hmm. bring themselves to live in that world. Yeah. Uh, they would rather just live their life as though they were not going to get sick. Uh, Same with um, like the Braca mutation. Um
1: which is, I think it makes you more prone. And I think it is the same thing, like a 50% chance of inheriting it. And you can inherit it from either side of your family. So like if your grandmother had it, it can be passed down through your dad. Um, And that puts you at risk for certain types of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, I think. And if you have it, then they recommend that you get a full mastectomy and then your ovaries removed, I think at the age of 35 or something like that. There's a few... Gosh. genetic predispositions to certain cancers and conditions. and
0: Yeah, the yeah. fact that we have the knowledge and we have the ability to test for some of those things at least uh, and particularly the ones that are sort of almost as likely as not, then mm-hmm. it's, for me, that's striking that there are people who choose not to test and they would rather not know even if the not knowing put them at higher risk.
1: Mm-hmm. I think Alzheimer's is like that as well, isn't it?
0: Certain uh, types? Yeah, yeah, I think certain types. He, well, sort of, all sorts of heritable conditions. And I don't know yeah. because on one hand, if I would get like a, a test result uh, from school, I'll always mm. like take a minute before I look at it, sort of work myself mm. up and, you know, I'm. Mm. but I don't think that I would ever want to not know. I think it would depend on if there was
1: something that you could actively do about it or not. Mm think in the case of Alzheimer's because there's no cure for it and you just kind of have to manage it maybe in a situation like that I wouldn't want to know because me knowing wouldn't make a difference to the outcome but if it was something like the BRCA mutation where if you have it and you can do something preventative like the mastectomy or getting your ovaries removed to Um, like do something with that information that would make you feel better about it, then I would want to know.
0: Yeah, I think even if I couldn't do anything about it, I'd want to know if only so that I could plan things, you know, start leaving post-it notes around the house or something. That's true. Oh, yeah. I think that's partly my own sort of setup is I like to uh, have a sense of, of control even over things that I know that I can't control. So Mm. doing something, uh, and I talk about this with my comedy, particularly with Savage, doing something about something, I mean, like on the periphery, around something that Mm. you can't do anything about in like a direct real way makes me feel more um, competent to deal with it. Yeah. So for me, doing a show that didn't affect my mum's illness but that was about my mum's illness made me feel like there was something I could do.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Maybe and it's I guess rearranging it's all... the deck chairs on the Titanic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's well, that's really relevant to what's going on now too, is it's such an uncontrollable and unknown situation and none of us can control the outcome. Like we don't know how high the numbers are going to go. We don't know how long it's going to go on for, but, you know, almost in staying home and doing our little self-care practices, whatever they may be and how trivial they may seem, it is a way for all of us to control an uncontrollable situation in a way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, again, when it comes to, like, the competition of of suffering, like this is, it could be worse. (laughs) It could be so much worse. This is a terrible, terrible disease, but, like, the numbers are better than they could be.
1: Yeah. I mean there's a meme circulating where it was saying your grandparents were called to go to war, you're getting called to sit on the couch like a <laughs> small <laughs> <It's> <laughs> price to pay to save the world.
0: Yeah. I mean it's interesting for me because I'm a I'm a comedian in my industry. I'm seeing so many of my colleagues just their whole industry the whole industry has just disappeared out from under their feet. And I'd sort of spent the first two months of this year kicking myself for not doing enough live gigs because I'd fallen behind because my podcast work was covering the bills and was so absorbing I'm doing this daily podcast and it takes a lot of writing to do it and all of a sudden I've gone from thinking oh I'm so deeply underprepared for Melbourne I'm going to be really I'm going to look really foolish in front of all my colleagues who have been preparing their shows for months and you know I'll be playing catch-up and I don't like that feeling to all of a sudden oh I'm glad I didn't waste my time on that
1: yeah yeah, I mean, it just it just came so out of
0: nowhere, I feel.
1: Yeah. Like the escalation was just so crazy fast.
0: And, and it's something that uh, I was talking to with one of my, uh, talking about with one of my Patreon subscribers who's, who works for the NHS uh, in England, mm. and he was saying it's like watching the response to climate change in fast motion. That's the- true we're very bad at understanding exponential curves so we sort of think oh well it won't be a big issue for another week or another two weeks and so why should we change our behavior now yeah what's in it for me to change my behavior now I'll wait till everyone changes their behavior I'll wait till the government puts down regulations or I'll wait till I'm banned before I take action But seeing that happen, like, puts the response to climate change in a kind of an odd perspective because those are the kind of curves that you're looking at with climate change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there was another thing that I read where, like, you know everyone is listening to the scientists now about wash your hands and do whatever and then when it comes to climate change everyone is kind of disputing like oh is that really true like are they real like are those numbers real or whatever and it's like you know it never was about whether the science was real or not it was always about what directly affects you and what doesn't and this is something that is immediate and i mean even in australia like We had the benefit of watching it happen to China, to Italy, to the UK and the rest of Europe and the US now, and we know what's going to happen in two weeks, and yet our government still let a bloody cruise ship dock the other week, which is now responsible for the huge spike in New South Wales, and we're still not on a super strict lockdown because it's not that bad yet, and I just really wonder how you can watch it happen to so many other countries and have so many other cases and still not be drastic. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me.
0: It's a gambling urge because statistically your likelihood of getting it is high, but statistically your likelihood of being very badly affected by it is low. People are very Mm -hmm. hard, uh, very bad. They think, oh, well, it'll be unpleasant, but I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But it is, you know it's when you get to that hospitalisation stage. So how we don't, we don't really know how many cases are reported. Maybe a lot of mild cases yeah. are going underreported, so the death rates are exaggerated comparatively. But, like, yeah. if you get it badly enough, like, is it 20% of people end up needing respirators? I'm not sure what the statistic on that
1: is, but I think, like, the overriding uh, determinant of whether you will need a respirator or not is like the age and underlying conditions. But, um, I guess to me, it's kind of, you don't know if you're going to be the outlier who is the young, healthy person that does get into a critical condition because there's so many of them coming out now, people who are in their twenties, thirties, and forties, who are still getting excruciatingly sick and they're not just okay. And they're not just recovering.
0: Yeah, really? and then that's Russian roulette numbers. Once there are not exactly. enough respirators to go around, are exactly. you really willing to be spinning that barrel? Yeah, scary. It's it is it is scary. I mean, it's not. It's one of those things that is not necessarily worth dwelling on. You can kind of only do what you can do. Exactly. But it's hard. It's hard to only be able to do a limited amount of stuff. Hmm. Like. Yeah. Not hugging your loved ones is not what you're meant to do in a crisis.
1: I just wonder, especially like what the economy and what all the industries are going to look like when we come out of this on the other side as well, because, you know, this economic impact is kind of unprecedented, as is the situation. And... So, you know, we have this global reliance on China, which I guess we can't really have after this if we really want to learn a lesson from it. And so what are all the countries going to do? How are imports and exports going to change? Like, I'm really interested to see how all the superpowers kind of respond.
0: Yeah, and then also, you know, when you hear people talking about the economy in scornful terms, saying, oh, the economy is nothing compared to human life, Mm. that's true, except... Insofar as the the economy is human life, you know, there are very good numbers on what happens when uh, people are suffering with unemployment, if they're at home anxious, worried about where their next meal is coming from. There are really measurable bad health impacts from that. So I don't, you know, I don't know what that will lead us to, whether it means people will kind of break bad habits or reconsider sort of the trend towards narcissistic individualism that's been happening within capitalism and mm-hmm. or not, whether it'll kind of gear that up and it'll be kind of a dog-eat-dog situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I have always... Actually, no, not have always, but, like, this situation has kind of made me think about how, like, it's so important to, like have self-sustainability within a country in the event that this happens, but then also how great globalism is in that we can have this relationship with other countries and be able to be international people and how do you balance the two in an event like this? And I don't really have an answer for that.
0: No, no. it's it's It was shocking to me. I was brought up in the age of globalisation being the big thing mm. It was shocking to me to see these nationalist movements rising up sort of a counterpoint to globalization. I wonder whether they'll be uh, fueled by this disease or not.
1: Yeah and I think it's it's kind of with all politics I mean I would say I'm not a very political person and I sit right in the middle like my brothers are definitely more towards the left my mom is more towards the right and because I have those conflicting perspectives all the time I've always struggled with like where I sit and I think it does depend on the topic sometimes I think oh maybe I am more towards the left or maybe I am more towards the right and then it changes the next day and I've never been able to define what that is and then this has just made it even more confusing because both sides are trying to argue their point on specific topics in a certain way that I don't have enough information to understand and I always see like when someone presents me with a point I'm like that makes a lot of sense and I agree with you and then the other side presents a point I'm like damn it that also makes a lot of sense and I also agree with you and so
0: yeah, one of the things I learned, I did mediation when I was at law school. It was one of my electives and one of the lessons that I retained from that uh, course was if you're mediating a dispute, look at interests rather than positions. Mm. So in this instance, I think both people on the right and people on the left, let's exclude people who are just malicious and horrible, Uh the interest, the underlying interest is in protecting their families and yeah. looking after the people they love. And and that if you kind of, when you find these like so many really aggressive combative arguments, it's often that they're looking at each other's positions rather than in the underlying interest.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it because I found that in I was brought up in a family which was always very political and political discussions were very common around the dinner table. But I think as you get older and you start to actually understand politics and it's not just something that you can discard to the side anymore, I found it's one of the main areas of discussion where people really don't budge. And it's so difficult to have an open conversation with people about it. I feel like if you're really stuck in your position, you won't even listen to what the other side has to say it all which
0: I find quite upsetting yeah because it because it it comes down to identity rather than yeah. anything sort of rational or even you know it's it's a feeling even rather than a belief often mm. when you come down to it political affiliation just comes down to a gut feeling about who your allies are yeah and you can sort of construct an argument out of whole cloth you know it's what was the last thing you really changed your mind on? Not necessarily politically, but just. Hmm. I have to think about for a second. It's allowed to think.
1: I think it was more of a personal thing that I I would, I'm struggling how to word this. I would say I changed my mind on, it was definitely going through treatment. I think that my entire priority system changed as in what I valued and what I focused on and spent my time and energy on. And I think a huge part of that was um, focusing on what, other people thought about me and not making that a priority Mm -hmm. and it was how do I word this like I didn't realize how much value I put on it until I stopped valuing it
0: that's really interesting I don't know. Does that count as me changing my mind on something? Yeah, absolutely. So you had you had an understanding of the world that was so entrenched that you didn't even notice it. Something that yeah. you kind of took for granted it was part of your worldview. And like yeah. maybe maybe more central than you thought it was.
1: Yeah. And I Which think Which is other people's I,
0: opinions of you.
1: Yeah, in in so many different ways. I mean it, once I started to kind of reflect and deconstruct on what that actually looked like and how much it impacted me, I surprised myself because I kind of walked through life being like, oh, you know, I'm such an independent person and I do what I want and I don't care what people think. And if anyone asked me, oh, do you let outside opinions sway you? I would have said no. But um, I think because cancer takes so much of that armor away from you in the sense of you look completely different you don't have um the same life and comforts that you usually have in a lot of ways and having that taken away from you and you get taken back to this shell of a human that you are and you're really just drilled down to your core values and you get so close with yourself and I realized that I cared so much about what people thought not just in the way that I looked but even in when they would ask what I wanted to do with my life I would be embarrassed to tell them that I wanted to be really successful and start a business and I didn't want to work for a big corporation like a lot of commerce students aim to do and I wasn't interested in that world at all and in a way that was tied to I think being a woman you're kind of afraid to say that you're ambitious for fear of being perceived a certain way, for fear of being perceived as a know-it-all or arrogant or whatever else. Um, Certainly in Australia. Certainly in Australia. And I think stepping away from that and being like, why did I care so much? And it was all in my head anyway. Mm -hmm. Like if I, once I started being more honest with people about that no one really said anything and they're all like very supportive and it was all in my head and that was applicable to a few situations and I think um I I wish that I could give this new way of walking through life to a lot of my friends because I see a lot of women in business kind of do the same thing and they're scared of you know, telling people how they really feel and they, they let so much of other people but also university systems dictate what they do and how they think and all of that.
0: Yeah, this is a thing you, you sometimes don't real. This is something I came up against the other day in a sort of slightly more trivial context of the things that I'm proud of and be in some context being ashamed of the things that I'm proud of. So mm-hmm. I'm really proud that I've built up my podcasts and a sort of a very eclectic audience of weirdos around the world who like what I do. And I've built that up with the Patreon and with the last post and with an enormous amount of work. And I haven't ever gone through really the traditional gatekeepers of comedy. I haven't been passed mm-hmm. by the big clubs. I haven't, I've always kind of come in from the side by yeah. having built my own thing. And then uh, my friend Sammy Shah said to me on, we were messaging back and forth, uh, he said, oh, when I heard about this crisis, I thought this Alice will make this work for her and her audience. And my immediate response was to be slightly offended mm. because in the context of the comedy community and the arts community, if somebody tells you you're a good businesswoman or a good business person, there is an implicit Idea that maybe you're not that good an artist, right? And it wasn't until he said that, and I realized that I was offended at it, that I realized I am kind of embarrassed to be proud of what I've built. Yeah, it's so because, interesting
1: yeah, it's I a, a world where we would have like admired that so much in that yeah. been able to build like an audience, build an audience.
0: Yeah, but there's yeah in 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 comedy you sort of you want the audience to come to you almost despite your best efforts. The comedians that comedians admire are the sort of the true artists, which is to say that they can't do anything but the art. They're almost completely incompetent in life. And success is in the arts relatively often seen as a sort of a, a failing, selling out or being too uh, commercial or whatever it is. It's a yeah, It's a very weird dynamic. I actually had a
1: chat, I mean, in a sort of similar way, but um, I used to be a dancer and a lot of my friends are in full-time dance and I had a chat to one of them who recently stopped dancing and she's now become a personal trainer and she was saying that a lot of dancers kind of carry this air of being better than other people like I'm an artist and so I can't work because you know I I can't take a bar job or I can't do this thing on the side because I'm a full-time dancer like my art is everything and like I have to dedicate all of my time to this art because I'm an artist and they refuse to depart from that and i just wonder in this modern society and especially in sydney where it's so expensive to exist how long you can act like that before you do have to get a business sense just to get food on the table
0: yeah yeah and it's it's also odd because my my success has been built by not catering to the mainstream like i deliberately made that choice when I quit being a lawyer not to do things for other people not to do the things that I was interested in and so the people who like what I do who who I've kind of gathered around me over these years who like my work I know that they like my work I've not tricked them I've not I've not lured them I've not struck a cool deal I've not given them a 50% off bargain to make them sign up to my mailing list like they're actually I'm so proud to have made a connection with so many people around the world and fascinating people that I get to talk to on Patreon who have, you know, a sheet metal worker in Minnesota, as a lady in the rural, you know, like just so many different people and I get to engage with them because of work I've done and I'm so proud of it. And yet when Sammy Shah was like, oh, Alice will be fine, I was like, how dare you?
1: Yeah. (laughs) That is interesting. It's so, so, yeah, I mean, I guess what you just described is essentially the beginnings of a business is like finding your niche, finding your true customers that really see value in what you're offering. And I guess in business, that would be a product or service. And in a way, it's like you would be the product and like your, what you're delivering is product as well, I guess. And then like, you know, Patreon as a service, I guess. And so you've literally done exactly what we're taught to do. And so it's, it's almost weird for me to hear someone not be proud of that because from a business perspective, you've you've done really well.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's very hard in, in, in the arts and particularly in comedy, because you are, you are the job. It's very hard to be a workaholic without being a narcissist. Mm. If you're focusing on, on yourself. But for me, the comedy, I guess, is always, always, when I say secondary, that's going to sound like it doesn't matter. For me, the comedy is ab- about cultivating humanity. mm so for me, that's that's the purpose of everything that I do, my Tea with Alice podcast, which is, as you may have noticed, not that funny, uh, or The Last Post, which is just absolutely fucking ridiculous, or my stand-up shows, all of them, the core of that is not so much the art as what the art does, which is makes people conscious of their own humanity and aware of other people's humanity and and sort of nurtures that part of us that is humane, mm. empathetic or or connected or all all of that starts to drift into really wishy-washy hippie words, which I feel Mm -hmm. uncomfortable with as well. So yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm a very divided person, Maddie, (laughs) but this isn't uh, about me. We should uh, wrap this up relatively soon. What would you like from this? Would you like people to find you online? Would you like people to remember your name for the future?
1: Um, the best place, I think the, place that I interact with most is probably my Instagram that's kind of where I've written the most about my experiences and what I keep the most updated
0: that's fair and what if you had any advice for the people who are listening just one piece of advice if they could turn their minds to something for the next few hours or few days what would that be
1: I think it would just be, and this is, you know, this pandemic is a good time to do it, is just really honing in on what matters. And I think if you are blessed to be healthy and to have a functioning body to just really sit and appreciate how much of a blessing that is because when that is taken away and when you are faced with your mortality you would do anything to get that back and so as horrible as the world is right now if you have your health then that is more than you will ever need brilliant thank
0: you so much for having tea with me thank you
2: Frame. Loudly rifle, doll, a rifle day. On Monday morning, when she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin. Turns around for to view her frames, crying, Damn you, the cry up your ins. Loudly rifle, doll, all rifle day. And when the boss, he looks round the door Tie our ends up, first He will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Loudly, rightful, lally loudly, rightful day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames And wait for Elsie to return again Loudy right all, the, loudy right fall